This is the In Focus podcast from the Hindu. Hello and welcome to another edition of the In Focus podcast. I am your host G Sampat. There finally seems to be some movement towards a peace settlement in the Yemen civil war which has been raging for 9 years now. The Iran-backed Houthi rebels who have been fighting the Saudi coalition forces are now in talks with Saudi Arabia with Omani mediation. Although the negotiations are expected to take time before they yield results, there is some optimism in the air as the talks are happening in the aftermath of a China-mediated agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia to resume diplomatic relations. While war fatigue could be one trigger behind the talks, Another seems to be a clear shift in Saudi Arabia's foreign policy engineered by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. In recent months in stark contrast to the aggressive foreign policy that he started out with starting the war in Yemen, the failed blockade of Qatar, the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi in Turkey, the house arrest of Lebanon's prime minister and so on. MBS seems to have now made a conscious switch to a more tactical foreign policy centered on building relations with all the key powers in the region so what are the contours of saudi arabia's new foreign policy what has prompted this change and does it signal a more peaceful west asia in the long run we explore all these questions and more in this episode of in focus and we have with us the hindu's international affairs editor stanley johnny stanley thank you so much for joining us thanks sambhav thanks for having me here So Stanley after 9 years of brutal fighting the Houthis and the Saudis are now in talks and as per media reports they are discussing a full reopening of the Houthi controlled ports and the Sanaa airport which are under a blockade right now and also a timeline for foreign forces to exit the country so can you give us a quick overview of what's the agenda of this entire uh, talks that have started what are the demands from either side the houthis and saudi arabia and what can we expect at the end of it um a ceasefire is on for quite some time uh that was a parallel peace process which was taking place under un mediated talks but now this push for peace in yemen has got some momentum uh particularly after the iran saudi rapprochement which took place on which was announced on march 10th in beijing after secret talks that were mediated by china so now what is happening is that the yemen conflict at the end of the day this is a proxy conflict because the saudis look at the houthis and then they see an iranian proxy and iran looks at yemen which is right below saudi arabia and sees opportunity to expand its influence through houthis So Saudi Arabia wants to stop or defeat the Houthis whereas Iran wants to expand the Houthis you know uh, sphere of influence inside Yemen this has been going on since 2014 and Saudis started bombing Yemen since 2015 but uh, you know over the last 8 years Saudi Arabia we can argue for the sake of for the sake of an argument that Saudi Arabia prevented the Houthis from capturing the whole of uh, Yemen but they failed to you know sack houthis from sana yemen's capital and swaths of the northern territory of the country uh, so after 8 years i think the war fatigue as he suggested was setting in uh, uae has already exited the 
country. In a sense, they, they are no longer actively uh, participating in the conflict. The UAE was one of the original members of the Saudi-led coalition. Uh, so Saudi Arabia uh, is realizing its challenges, okay, which led to peace talks, parallel peace talks. But now, as an overall reconciliation is taking place between Saudi Arabia and Iran, they come together. Uh, and then the Iranians want to rename the Houthis for now. And the Saudis want to end the fighting and make sure that the Houthis do not attack them anymore. Because the Saudis over the last few years faced a constant drone and missile attacks from Yemen. Uh, you know, So Saudi Arabia wants to secure its border. And Iran also wants to you know, uh, uh, reach some kind of uh, an agreement with the Saudis. So this is giving a new thrust to the peace process in Yemen. So as part of that, we saw a prisoner swap agreement just a few days ago, and, this, and the Saudi delegation and the Saudi Omani delegation went to Sana'a, and they met uh, Mahdi al-Mashid, who is the Houthi Supreme uh, Command leader, and they also met apparently the Houthi movement leader uh, in Sana'a, uh, so, uh, I mean, it is expected that there would be some more announcements coming by the Eid uh, in a few days, uh, like the blockade would be lifted, uh, or at least East, more imports would be allowed in, and the Saudi-supported government would release funds for civil servants who are working in the Houthi-dominated areas, which would ease the humanitarian situation. Uh, and the Houthis, in return, would allow travel between people living in, you know, both the government-controlled and Houthi-controlled areas, etc., etc. So these are primarily confidence-building measures. So what the Saudis and the Iranians are trying to do as part of their tactical de-escalation, they are trying to create or they are trying to boost the conditions for peace between the two sides. So the next step is the more complicated step because once the Saudis and the Iranians reach some kind of an agreement on Yemen, the next step is that the Saudi, the, the Yemeni government and the Houthis will have to start talks. This is, you know, for context. Uh, take the case of Afghanistan. Uh, you know, uh, you know, look at the case of Afghanistan. So the talks took place between the Americans and the Taliban, and they reached an agreement. And the Americans decided to leave the country. And the next step was talks between the Taliban and the Afghan government. And but once the Americans were out the Taliban just went on taking over the whole country. Here, uh, it's not the same thing, but there are similarities. In a sense, talks are now taking place between Houthis and the Saudis, and the Houthis want Saudi troops, what they call international troops, out of their country. And once Saudi troops are out of their country, the next step is talks between the Houthis and the Yemeni government. So we don't know what will happen in the next step. You know, that is, I think, the most complicated uh, step of the peace process. But as of now, as part of the wider de-escalation between the Saudis and the Iranians, the Houthis are talking to Saudis, and Saudi Arabia seeks avenues to bring the war to an end so that it can ensure safety or better security along its border with Yemen. Right. So would it mean that uh, in case there is a settlement, Yemen would end up being uh, divided? between Houthi controlled uh, Yemen and uh, the, the part of Yemen which is under the Yemeni government? The immediate possibility is that Yemen would be divided. That is the immediate possibility. Uh, parts of the country are controlled by the Yemeni government, but the government is practically based in Saudi Arabia. The Yemen president, Mansur al-Hadi, nobody knows where he is. 
he must be in Riyadh. He is definitely not in Yemen. Uh, he is not seen or heard in many, many, uh, you know, months. Uh, so that is the Yemeni government, which is practically a Saudi Arabia-backed government based in Saudi Arabia, but their troops are there in Yemen. And then you have this Southern Transitional Council, uh, which are Southern separatists. They want Southern Yemen, which was an independent country uh, during the Cold War. They want Southern Yemen to be a sovereign state. Again, they have actually split from the Saudi-led coalition. So they want their own sovereignty in the South. And then in the North and Sana'a, Houthis are powerful. So practically, Yemen is now divided into three. So this, I think, uh, now the peace talks are taking place between the Houthis and the government of Yemen. Uh, so um, even if they agree on some kind of, you know, let's say confidence building measures, etc., etc., the immediate possibility is that violence would be reduced and the country would stay divided. But so shouldn't all the reality, shouldn't uh, Stanley shouldn't all the three? You said there are three different uh, forces which are in control of three different parts of Yemen. You spoke about the ones who want South Yemen to be in a sovereign state and then the Saudi uh, coalition and then the Houthis. But now only the Houthis and the Saudis are talking. What about the ones who want the South Yemen as a sovereign state? What about that group? Aren't they, shouldn't they have been part of the talk? What if they don't agree with what these two sides are discussing? Yeah, they ideally they should be part of the talks. So maybe in the next step, they are planning to incorporate them as well because the Southern Transitional Council is backed by the UAE. UAE has left the war, at least they have announced that they have exited the war, but they continue to back STC because the UAE sees STC as a vehicle to, uh, you know, retain its influence in the country. So uh, let's say that hypothetically speaking, uh, there is some kind of an agreement between the Houthis supported by Iran and the government supported by Saudi Arabia. The next step could be uh, as part of the intra-Yemen talks what we called intra-Afghan talks. You know, the Afghan example keeps coming back to my mind whenever I try to understand the Yemen problem. So as part of the intra-Afghan talks, you need, uh, you know, talks between the, all the three sides, Houthi rebels, the government, as well as the STC. So that could be the next step. Right. So now coming, uh, taking a step back from the actual uh, Houthi-Saudi uh, talks to the larger uh, forces at play, which have sort of led to this a positive development and one of the key factors you've written about it as well for the Hindu is the change in uh, the foreign policy of Saudi Arabia engineered by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salwan. So can you talk a little bit about how this came about especially his early years you know once he reached the top uh, within his country he was in charge of foreign policy and uh, he started this war. It was he who started this war, actually. And then he ordered his assassination of the Saudi journalist Jamal Khashoggi, which led to a huge outcry. I mean, he was painted in dark colors as someone who's reckless and unnecessarily aggressive. He started, a, you know, uh, this, he, he did the house arrest of the Lebanese prime minister. So from that kind of uh, aggressiveness bordering on recklessness, then suddenly he seems to have changed tack. So can you just give us a kind of... A, an understanding of how this trajectory developed. Yeah. Uh, so when MBS, uh, you know, uh, started rising in Saudi Arabia's power circles, uh, Salman became the king in 2015 January. And MBS was immediately appointed the defense minister. He became the crown prince two years later. But MBS became the defense minister. He was in his early 30s. 
when this happened. And in three months, they started the war on Yemen. So, uh, see, when Salman became the king, or MBS became the defense minister, uh, West Asia was in the midst of, uh, you know, heightening Saudi-Iran Cold War. Because we are talking about 2015. The Russians hadn't gone into Syria yet. Everybody was expecting, all the analysts, you, I mean, if you go back uh, to 2015 and read uh, the commentaries on West Asia, most of the analysts were expecting Bashar al-Assad to fall. His government was being encircled by rebels, etc., etc. Uh, so the overall situation in the region was that, uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia sensed an opportunity to expand its influence across the region through force. Because in Syria, Saudi Arabia was involved in the civil war. The Saudis were backing anti-Assad rebels in Syria. And, uh, you know, uh, in Iraq, Saudi Arabia had retained very good ties with uh, the Sunni mi minority in the country. And in Yemen, which is in Saudi Arabia's backyard, the Houthis had taken over in 2014, a year earlier, and they had taken over Sana'a. So the new leadership so the of Saudi Houthis Arabia, are uh, the Houthis are Shia uh, community people, is it? They are Shia. They are Shia. Yes. And they, they were backed by Iran. Yeah. So Saudi Arabia saw that as a threat, direct threat from Iran. So they wanted to roll back uh, the Houthi influence. So uh, if you look at 2015, uh, you know, the region, West Asia was witnessing hate and cold war between these two major powers, Saudi Arabia and Iran. And MBS thought that he has to be, he has to accept, he has to adopt a more aggressive foreign policy to roll back the Iranian influence. He wanted to roll back the Iranian influence in Syria by supporting the pro-Iran regime in Damascus, uh, and by supporting the rebels who were fighting the pro-Iran regime uh, in Damascus. And in Yemen, he started uh, an all-out war uh, to fight, to push back the Houthis and other aggressive uh, foreign policies as well. For example, in the case of Qatar, uh, Saudi Arabia imposed a blockade on Qatar. Uh, Saudi-led coalition imposed a blockade on Qatar. And one of the demands the Saudis issued to the Qataris uh, was to cut off ties with Iran completely. You know, cut off ties with Iran, cut off ties with Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated organizations, shut down Al Jazeera, etc., etc. Uh, so this is 2015. But now, 2023, we are in 2023. Just look at, look back and look at the policies of uh, the Crown Prince. Most of them were failures, you know. I mean, let's take make an honest assessment. Uh, Qatar didn't budge, but Qatar still maintains its relationship with, uh, uh, you know, Turkey, Muslim Brotherhood-affiliated groups. Al Jazeera is still broadcasting news. Uh, Qatar still shares the largest offshore gas reserves with Iran, etc., etc. And in Yemen, after uh, eight, nine years of bombing, the Houthis still control Sana'a. And they still control vast territories in northern uh, Yemen. Not just that, the Houthis also possess uh, uh, drones and uh, short-range missiles, which they fire uh, into Saudi Arabia and even to Abu Dhabi. So they are constantly threatening uh, security of uh, Gulf, Gulf kingdoms. And in Syria, Bashar al-Assad has, for all practical reasons, won the civil war. Nobody is now talking about uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, toppling Assad. Nobody is saying Assad must go. Instead, Assad was greeted warmly by the uh, UAE president just last month. The Saudi foreign minister, as we discuss now, Saudi foreign minister Faisal al-Farhan is now in Damascus, right? 
And Tunisia just uh, normalized ties with uh, uh, Syria a few days earlier. So uh, you look at Saudi foreign policy. They failed to defeat uh, Houthis in Yemen. They failed to topple Bashar al-Assad in Syria. They failed to roll back Iranian influence elsewhere in the region. And on the other side, I mean, this is happening on the one side. And on the other side, Saudi foreign policy uh, is largely dependent, has largely been dependent on the United States for security guarantees, right? But in 2019, when Saudi Arabia's oil facilities were attacked by, everybody knows that, by the Iranians or the Houthis, which knocked off 50% of or half of Saudi Arabia's oil production capacity for, for a week, you know, nobody came to Saudi Arabia's rescue. The Americans just turned away. Uh, Trump was the president. And apparently with the Trump administration, MBS had very warm ties, but still the Americans just turned away. I think that was a wake-up call for the Saudis because on the one side, your foreign policy based on aggressive, uh, you know, uh, outreach or, or uh, aggressive engagement or proxy war, they're not paying off. And on the other side, your traditional guarantor of security is looking away. That is also because the United States strategic priority is now elsewhere, either in Eastern Europe or in East Asia. Uh, so I think then, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has to recalibrate its approach. I think that was that that was the main reason that that is affecting the change right now. So what is MBS trying to do is now is that he is trying to reach some kind of a dutant with the Iranians, while at the same time, you know, he is trying to build a more stable foreign policy in the region by reaching out to old rivals. So he is now ready to have talks with the Houthis. He is now ready to normalize ties with uh, Syria's Bashar al-Assad. Uh, the, the blockade against Qatar uh, is over, long over. In 2021, they ended the blockade. So he is now uh, entering into a rapprochement with Iran. So you see all kind of changes in the Saudi foreign policy. So I think it was primarily driven by these two factors. One, the failure of his own policy. Secondly, the larger geopolitical changes in the region in which the United States is pivoting away. Right. I think from what you're saying, I would, uh, I mean, my big takeaway is that I think the failure of the U.S. to sort of uh, respond decisively when the Houthis attacked Saudi oil installations in 2019, I think uh, that was probably one turning point because not everybody learns from their foreign policy mistakes, do they? But Sal Mohammed bin Salman seems to have learned uh, from his mistakes uh, after this uh, wake-up call, uh, as you as you put it. And then there has been a course correction. Now, coming to coming back to this whole uh, focus, uh, this this entire dependence on the United States, which Saudi Arabia has had strategically. On the one hand, in recent years, recent months, the US has been trying to get different Arab countries such as UAE, Bahrain, Sudan, Morocco, all of them into normalizing ties with Israel. You know, with uh, with a focus on keeping Iran at bay. And then now we have Mohammed bin Salman actually beginning to normalize relations with Iran, which is Israel's arch enemy. So these seem to be like, you know, there seems to be a contradiction here. And we also know that uh, MBS does not have the best of relationships with Biden. So what exactly do you think is, 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 is on his mind with regard to the U.S.? Is he trying to use uh, various measures to sort of increase his leverage with the U.S.? We also know, for instance, he refused to uh, roll back the cuts in uh, production last October, 
during the Ukraine war, which the U.S. desperately wanted. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. So what is going on? What is this approach with regard to the U.S.? Uh, so first, the Israel factor. The Americans knew that their deprioritization of the region will have strategic repercussions. Because uh, since, let's say, since the Suez War, um, late 1950s, the United States has been the main security player in West Asia, especially for the Gulf kingdoms. But now the United States, uh, you know, is being, uh, uh, you know, less and less inclined to take up more armed conflicts in the region because I think Washington realizes that uh, its conflicts in the region, uh, you know, when the United States got stuck in the region in West Asia, China and Russia were rising elsewhere. Now, which pose conventional, much more conventional threats to the United States, the United, the United States has to focus on those threats. So it is deprioritizing West Asia, and the deprioritization will definitely have a strategic impact. So the U.S. answer to this, you know, to cushion the effect of the strategic impact of its own deprioritization of the region, was to bring Israel in. So, you know, bring Israel in to fill in the vacuum being left by uh, being created by the U.S. withdrawal, the U.S. disengagement. So Abraham Accords was part of this, you know, uh, because the UAE, the, the Arab Gulf states and the Israel and Israel are the two pillars of the U.S. West Asia policy. So what the U.S. and these two pillars were, um, you know, standing apart uh, throughout the Cold War period because, you know, the, the bitter rivalry between the Arabs and the Israelis. But now what the United States wanted was to bring these two pillars closer so that they can uh, deal with their common enemy, which is the Islamic Republic of Iran. This is the plan. This is the strategic plan. And Abraham Accords, actually, uh, by, by Abraham Accords, they laid uh, you know, the foundation of this strategic plan. And the UAE came forward. Uh, you know, Bahrain came forward. Uh, and so did uh, Morocco and Sudan. I'm not sure how this is going to play out in, in the case of Sudan, but definitely the UAE uh, has established ties with Israel, and the Israelis were also very happy what Netanyahu calls the circle of peace. When Netanyahu became prime minister in December, what he said was that uh, one of the, his foreign policy goals was to expand the circle of peace. But Saudi Arabia, you know, is, the, is supposed to be the prime actor in this strategy, because Saudi Arabia is arguably the most powerful Arab country you know, the custodian of the holy mosques of Mecca and Medina, and uh, also one of the largest oil producers in the country, uh, in the world. So if Saudi Arabia normalizes ties with Israel, that would be uh, the final achievement of this policy. But then uh, the problem is that this is also happening at a time when the Israelis were deepening their occupation of the Palestinian territories. Uh, there is ongoing violence uh, in Al-Aqsa during every Ramzan uh, month and uh, repeated clashes in Gaza, in the West Bank, etc. Et so the Saudis, they, they had two options. One, I, I mean, the, the American disengagement is a reality. So faced with the American disengagement and faced with their own failures, the Saudis had two options. One was to join this new American push to bring together the two pillars of its foreign policy and normalize ties with Israel. So join this bandwagon, which the UAE did. The other is to inject some kind of realism into the foreign policy and reach out to Iran 
to stabilize its relationship with its rivals in the region and uh, you know uh, establish some kind of dutont uh, uh, with its main rivals instead of joining hands with the israelis and mbs i think chose to do the latter because maybe i think that he sensed that joining the israeli camp would have repercussions or it is more it is riskier than the other option so he has chosen uh, the other option and what do you mean by riskier riskier by riskier do you mean domestic repercussions or something else yeah there could be there could be domestic repercussions or you know saudi arabia is not the uae saudi arabia is not sudan saudi arabia you know and, and the saudi king uh, when abdullah was the king uh, salman's predecessor abdullah had put forward a plan which is called the arab peace initiative in 2002 which is still existing and as part of the arab peace initiative the saudi king at that time proposed that if a palestinian independent palestinian state is created based on the 1967 border with east jerusalem uh, being the capital of the future palestinian state all the arab countries would offer formal recognition to the state of israel so ultimate peace between the arabs and israel would hinge on the creation of an independent palestinian state based on the 1967 border with east jerusalem being its capital this is the essence of the saudi peace plan and king abdullah made this proposal and king salman has made it repeatedly he has said that saudi arabia would not normalize ties with uh, israel as long as it continues the occupation of the palestinians so if mbs does that he is actually he would be disengaging himself from this legacy you know so and also mbs hasn't become the king uh, he has to go through that process and saudi palace is known for its own power struggles uh, so it is it could be riskier so that could be i think my sense is that that is his uh, his uh, uh, calculation is also because the israelis are also not helping right there is a far right government in israel it is it is like it's, a, it's an almost theocratic government and uh, there is ongoing violence uh, uh, in in the west bank so the situation is no, also not ideal and the israelis are now talking about annexing the west bank territories the the jewish settlements in the west bank so is this the time for saudi arabia to normalize ties with israel so i don't think so uh, so then the other option is to reach out to the iranians you know you adopt a more realistic foreign policy reach out to the iranians uh you know you 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 find some kind of a balance in the in in your rivalry with iran this doesn't mean that saudi arabia and iran would become great friends tomorrow no but at least this sets the stage for some kind of a tactical deescalation i think that that is what is taking place and uh with regard to your second question on the united states uh you know the saudis i think there are two parts of the saudi foreign policy uh one is to reach out to your old rivals and new enemies for stability in west asia and the second part is to balance between great powers so apparently wall street journal reported quoting some one unnamed saudi official uh saying that mbs himself told his uh top officials that he stopped doing the american bidding so he wanted something in return from the americans for what he does for the americans so mbs wants to have more you know equal relationship with the united states so i think the saudis would retain their relationship with the united states because america would continue to remain saudi arabia's most important partner but at the same time uh, they are also diversifying their relationship they have they have mbs has built very good ties with russia and as you mentioned despite us pressure uh, they cut oil production twice not once but twice 
which allowed prices to go up, which would help the Russians, definitely. And by reaching out to the Iranians, by reaching the reconciliation agreement with Iran, under China-mediated talks, practically they are announcing the arrival of China as a power broker in West Asia. So you see all three major powers, the United States, Russia, and China. Uh, so Saudi Arabia, which is, as I said, arguably the most powerful Arab country in the region, is balancing between all three. So West Asia is no longer an American backyard. I think that is the takeaway. Right. I mean, from, from listening to you explain uh, this, unpack this entire foreign policy in great detail, it does seem to me that there is some kind of a, a really solid strategic logic uh, behind this entire uh, shift. Now, before we wind up, uh, Stanley, we're running out of time. Very quickly, I wanted you to talk about, like you spoke about uh, its, uh, it, its calculus with the U.S., uh, what about its policy with regard to another major power? We've spoken about Saudi Arabia, the, the strongest Arab power in the region. We've spoken about Iran. What about Turkey? How does the equation with Turkey work out? Because after the Khashoggi assassination, uh, things were going south. Yeah. So, uh, again, I think there is some, uh, some understanding now between Riyadh and Ankara. Because Turkey is... Yeah, for all practical means, Turkey is a major uh, power uh, in West Asia. So, uh, interestingly, you see there are four major powers in, in the region. Uh, one is Iran, two is Israel, three is Turkey, and the fourth is Saudi Arabia. And Saudi Arabia, I would say, slipped in recent years. That is mainly because of the policies which we discussed, the policies that back, backfired, the policies that failed. And having realized to their own mistakes, Saudi Arabia wants to fix those, mis you know, those, those failures and be back in the great game of West Asia. So, uh, you know, one of the mistakes the Saudis committed was definitely the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, which created not just a, which was not just a PR disaster, but also created problems uh, for MBS in his ties with other countries. And Erdogan used uh, this incident to attack the Saudis. And you and I remember Erdogan's speeches in Parliament, saying that he would hold all those responsible for the killing, uh, you know, to account, etc., etc. But then once the Saudis reached out to uh, the Turks. And Erdogan also found that they have to, uh, you know, dial down the tensions between the two. And uh, I think he is not, he is no longer interested in uh, uh, trying uh, those who were arrested. I think he had even extradited them back to, the Saudi, back to Saudi Arabia. So Erdogan is also no longer pursuing the case, Jamal Khashoggi's case. And uh, so the Saudis had reached some kind of an agreement uh, with them. Also, uh, Qatar is Turkey's main partner or ally in the Gulf. You know, in 2021, Saudi Arabia decided to end the blockade of Qatar. So, which was also a message for Turkey. Turkey is going to station some 5,000 troops in Qatar. So, I think the Saudis realized that they have to live with this new reality where there are multiple powers in the region and Turkey is one of the powers. So, this is what Obama famously said uh, in his departing interview. He said Saudi Arabia, he, he was talking about Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, he said for stability in the region, Saudi Arabia and Iran uh, have to reach what he called a cold peace. 
and they need to learn to share the region. So I think, I mean, everybody attacked Obama at that time. Obama continues uh, to be attacked for the Iran nuclear deal, etc., etc. But now what is happening is Saudi Arabia and Iran, they are trying to share the region. And Saudi Arabia and Turkey had also, uh, you know, reached that kind of an agreement. Uh, so, but this is all happening at a tactical level, whether this, this you know, does this actually mean a strategic realignment? For that, we have to wait and see. But a solid tactical de-escalation is taking place in West Asia before us. And this is unprecedented. We haven't seen this kind of, uh, you know, changes in the region in a long time. Because here, the focus is on diplomacy, on peace, because West Asia has seen conflicts, a lot of conflicts. And, and here you see a major thrust for diplomacy for diplomatic engagement, for talks, for reducing the conflicts, etc., etc., And we also see that the United States is a spectator here, which is also unprecedented. You take the Suez, you know, right from the Suez uh, War, the Suez War, uh, Camp David Agreement of the late 1970s, the Oslo peace process, early 1990s, or you, uh, you know, uh, uh, look at other, the, you know, the Middle East Quartet uh, Initiative, or even the Arab peace plan of Saudi Arabia, or the Abraham Accords. You look at all major diplomatic, uh, you know, efforts in the region. The United States was an undivided was, you know, was uh, was part of uh, all these all the diplomatic uh, efforts. But here, when the when West Asia is witnessing major changes, the U.S. spectator. So that is also unprecedented in the history of West Asia. Right. I mean, unprecedented, uh, I think, is an adjective which would uh, apply in more uh, than the senses you have pointed out uh, with, of course, uh, remarkable accuracy. I was just wondering, Stanley, see, whenever, um, I'm not a foreign policy expert, but whenever there have been like sharp changes in a country's foreign policy, it usually tends to happen when there is a regime change, okay? A new regime comes in with their own vision of what the country's foreign policy should do. And then you see some changes or it happens uh, due to some kind of regional uh, realignments which cause for a rethink on a country's foreign policy. But here, what you've seen is it is the same, not just the same regime, it is the very same person doing a course correction within a matter of five, six years. And it's almost like seeing a country's foreign policy uh, lesson, learn its lesson, and then evolve in real time. I mean, isn't this unprecedented? Have you seen this happening with any other country? The same person course correcting uh, in just almost real time. So, uh, yeah, it can happen. There are examples. Like when, uh, see, when the circumstances change, sometimes leaders also change. Uh, so, for example, you take the case of Turkey, for an immediate example. Turkey uh, was supporting the rebels to bring down the regime of Bashar al-Assad. And, and uh, later on, Turkey reached out to Assad because they realized that the fall of, you know, a fall of Assad would be a bitter head, headache for Turkey. Uh, so when the circumstances change, I think leaders or leaders with ears on the ground uh, will also change their policies. They will have to change their policies. I mean, I, I wasn't referring to policy with regard to one particular thing, you know, like this Turkey uh, example you gave it. Okay, one region, one issue. I'm just talking about the entire tenor 
a changing you know you are, you are going all guns blazing and then suddenly you are now go playing a far more sophisticated subtle game this entire the, your whole uh, what should i say the vision mission kind of a thing seems to be changing not just uh, approach to one uh, issue or one country which of course could change yeah yeah it's it's uh, definitely it's interesting it's it's good news uh uh it's interesting because i think uh, the saudi government realizes that the circumstances around them have changed and their the policies they had adopted earlier are not sustainable they are riskier so they have taken i think a more realistic approach they see the united states disengaging they see bashar al-assad winning the civil war they don't see the syrian the, the uh, iran regime collapsing or falling that was their only hope so they are you know they they are forced by the circumstances to affect changes but at the same time there are risks in the region you know iran's nuclear program the continuing rivalry between iran and israel and also uh, the challenge before another challenge before mbs is to continue to balance between the united states and its other foreign policy objectives because definitely the united states is angry the cia chief bill burns had traveled to riyadh Uh, in an unannounced visit, and uh, told MBS that he was frustrated, uh, uh, you know, uh, that the United States was uh, blindsided by the Saudi moves to Iran, etc., etc. So there are a lot of challenges as well before MBS. But I would still say that this thrust uh, for diplomacy, talks, engagement, reducing conflicts, etc., etc., you know, that's good news for West Asia. right i mean this this uh, thrust towards uh, diplomacy is uh, definitely good news for the region we'll need to wait and see to what extent it is able to navigate the various risks which are still at play thank you so much stanley for uh, talking to us and for sharing your uh, tremendous insights and knowledge of the region uh, with the hindu listenership thank you so much pleasure thank you in focus will be back soon with analysis of the biggest news issues in the meantime you can find our podcast on spotify apple podcasts stitcher and other platforms just search for in focus by the hindu we'll see you soon